The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he is also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Doing well, Father. Good. Good to see you again. Yes, you too. It's great to be back for another week, Father. There has uh, been a lot of news today, uh, March 15th, uh, in regards to a quote-unquote shock announcement uh, that came out of the Vatican from the uh, the Holy See press office. They announced that on Friday, March 25th, during the celebration of penance, uh, at which Francis will preside, uh, he will consecrate both Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Uh, apparently on the same day, he will have one of his cardinals uh, carry out the same consecration actually in Fatima. Uh, so, Father... Um, a lot of Catholics the world over are very excited uh, at hearing this news. They um, they see in this a uh, fulfillment of Our Lady uh, Our Lady's request at Fatima to consecrate Russia to her Immaculate Heart. There are many Catholics who have been praying for this for years. They think that this will bring uh, world peace. Um, there are now calls going out to uh, for Catholics to ask their local bishop to join in this consecration. Uh, so that all the bishops of the world can perform this consecration like Our Lady requested uh, in union with the Holy Father. So, Father, what is your reaction to this, though? Do you share any uh, excitement in regards to this news of a consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart? Well, you know, Tom, I think that's going to take a little bit of time to talk about that. And um, I know we had some emails left over from last, last week. So I, people have been waiting very patiently. Uh, maybe we could address those first and then uh, launch into the deep on these questions, <laughs> if you don't mind. Yeah. Yes, Father, we can do that. Okay. We, uh, well, I can start with this one right here where a, a viewer asked, uh, might be somewhat related, but she, she asked if she should be troubled that all so-called traditional Catholics are not unified. She said, I ask our Lord in prayer to be in his truth and to live it and to help me to get to heaven. She said, I do listen to people like Father Gruner sometimes, but I feel upset wondering why they were in some other group. Uh, so God bless you, Father, for all you do. But what do you think about this question of traditional Catholics not being unified? Well, Tom, we have talked about that before somewhat. And I'll try to be uncharacteristically brief about that because we have covered it somewhat extensively in the past. Uh, and it all goes back to what makes one a traditional Catholic. Um, again, I, I haven't seen a what I consider to be a very uh, good, comprehensive explanation of that. Uh, I've attempted one of my own, right? A traditional Catholic is one who uh, follows the tradition of the Catholic Church, uh, quite simply, right? And it seems like a, a tautology, but the fact is, uh, at least in my estimation, and I offer this for consideration as a kind of a definition, that a traditional Catholic is one who actually does 
hold himself to do and actually does what the church has always required of Catholics to do. And at the same time, he never does what the Catholic Church has always forbidden Catholics to do. And as a third thing, uh, that he will do the things that the Church uh, itself has approved of um, in times of crisis. We, we, we look back, actually, in Catholic tradition, and we find Catholic tradition is expressed in the Church's history. That history is guided by the Holy Ghost, sent by our Lord Himself. And uh, so we see in the tradition of the Church the work of God, the Holy Ghost. Now, of course, you know, the Church, uh, as our Lord said, is established by our Lord to call sinners. So we expect to find uh, sinful human beings uh, contributing their sinful selves and sinful activities. Uh, but the Church is here to try to sanctify them. So we don't find human sin to be the work of the Holy Ghost. But we do find the Holy Ghost's work in the Church's own pronouncements, um, in what she has commanded, in what she has forbidden, and in what she has, uh, in what she has allowed in times of crisis. You know? <clears throat> now we find, uh, you know, if you got all the traditional Catholics in the world together in the same place, as I mentioned, I, I think by the, by, by the very fact that they are traditional Catholics, um, they would all agree that they believe the Catholic faith as, as it is taught in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the Roman Catechism. I think they would all agree. We, we all adhere uh, with all our mind and our heart and our soul to the teachings of the Church throughout her history, and notably the Catechism of the Council of Trent is a hallmark of Catholic teaching. I think they'd all be united in that faith. I think they'd all agree, too, um, in... Um, uh, you know, the, the Catholic uh, morality, which is part of her doctrinal authority, too, as far as not only true and false, but right and wrong. Um, and then they, they would all agree on the, uh, the uh, matter of the Church itself in her liturgy. I think most of the traditional Catholics in the world would readily agree that the liturgy that they want consists of the, well, we're talking about Roman Catholics of the uh, Latin Rite. There are those who want the true Latin Rite. They want the Roman Rite of Mass and the, the Rite of Sacraments before Vatican II. They want the traditional rites of the Mass and the Sacraments. And I think that every single one of them would want, would want that. And if you ask them, well, what is the rule that you follow? And I think they would all say, well, in these times of crisis, we have to follow Catholic tradition. Uh, which is the, has the authority above every pope, and all the popes together, really. Uh, Catholic tradition is the work of the Holy Ghost. And in fact, Christ created the papacy uh, to give us a living voice which, who would actually speak the words of Catholic tradition. Um, you know that um, our Lord said that he would send the Holy Ghost not to teach us new doctrines, but to bring to our minds all things whatsoever I, Jesus Christ, have told you the Apostles. So it's meant to confirm us in our faith. This is the work of the Holy Ghost, and there's no Pope who has the right to defy that and say, well, I'm going to come up with new doctrines on my own then, and attribute it to the Holy Ghost. It's impossible. <clears throat> so again, the papacy itself exists to exert, to, to uh, reinforce, promulgate, uh, to make clear the tradition of the Catholic Church, not to condemn it, not to destroy it. Um, <clears throat> But I think that is why there is division. I think although there are 
you know, the vast majority of them, and I would think anybody who would really have a legitimate claim to be traditional Catholic would say, yes, I believe everything that was taught in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, and therefore they'd be united in faith there. And yes, I want the traditional rites of the Mass and the Sacraments, of the Roman rite of the Church. And um, they'd be united in that desire for that worship. Um, even those who accepted the early changes of John the Twenty-Third in, in the nineteen sixty-two, I don't think they wanted that. I think they just accepted it because it was what was offered to them. <clears throat> but I think the divergence is that while they would all say, "Well, we're, we're traditional; we're following Catholic tradition," they aren't, and I think that's where the division is. There are those who claim to be traditional, but they're really not. In fact. I would, you know, we have rhinos, Republican in name only. Well, we have trinos, traditional in name only. And that they say they're following Catholic tradition, but they will deviate from Catholic tradition when it serves their purpose, when it's easier, when it's convenient. And therefore, if they would deviate from Catholic tradition to serve some practical purpose that <laughs> makes it easier or convenient for them, they cannot really consider themselves honestly traditional Catholics. But I think this is what the so-called different uh, traditional Catholic groups see in each other. They see a willingness to deviate from Catholic tradition when it um, serves some uh, human need, right? Um, and there are very few, very few out there, uh, traditional Catholic groups uh, who actually hold themselves rigidly to uh, to Catholic tradition. In other words, not cutting corners, not making excuses, but always doing what the Church has always required to be done, always and everywhere. Never doing what the Church has always and everywhere condemned as completely antithetical to being Catholic. And then knowing, uh, studying carefully and observing the Church's judgment about things that were done uh, in matters of, in times of crisis, and following very carefully the Church's lead in that. that. That's where you find Catholic tradition. Those who adhere to that are really traditional Catholics, and not trinos, not traditional in name only. Mm -hmm. um, I, yes, am I troubled by it? Well, I'm, I'm sorry that there are people who are, who are trinos, who are, are, do not really follow Catholic tradition as much as they claim to be. But, I mean, one of the prime examples that comes to mind, and I, again, I wanted to cover this quickly, but is um, the, the matter of the Took bishops. I think, you know, any, anyone who would say, well, we're going to save Catholic tradition, we're going to be faithful to Catholic tradition by simply ignoring the fact that a Catholic archbishop consecrated non-Catholics as bishops, something the Church has always condemned, always and everywhere condemned. And... Um, you know, for years it, it was uh, a matter of a person being declared, um, uh, you know, unable to function as a Catholic bishop. There would be an inquest. And then, um, most recently, uh, under Pope Pius XII, made a matter of excommunication. And not just any excommunication, excommunication most specially reserved to the Holy See itself. That's how serious this is. And the fact that there would be traditional Catholics or trinos who, who would justify that somehow and just kind of dismiss that as though that's not significant um, and just build their uh, traditional Catholic position on, on that.
foundation is just, again, I think it's uh, yeah, unconscionable uh, and uh, uh, totally, again, contrary to what the church has always taught us to do and what not to do. So I think that's, that's part of it. On the one hand, I would say, well, it's, it's a shame that's happening. On the other hand, I would say, thank goodness that there are some who will not compromise and who will follow Catholic tradition very carefully and faithfully. So to that extent, I'm very glad that there are those who will not only claim to be traditional Catholics, but will actually be traditional Catholics. Hopefully, that voice will prevail and others will come and to see... Um, that they're not really being totally uh, genuine in their following of Catholic tradition, and hopefully they will begin to practice Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's my hope. Okay, uh, next email, Father. How should Pope Pius the Twelfth be remembered by traditional Catholics? Was he a saint who earnestly tried to hold off the modernist revolution, or could he have done more? <laughs> well, a saint, I don't know. I can't canonize him, of course. Uh, no doubt, in some ways, he was saintly. He suffered a great deal from illness the last at least 10 years of his, of his reign as Supreme Pontiff. Um, one, one thing you notice after the death of Pope St. Pius X and the sidelining of his Secretary of State, Cardinal Mary Delval, is what seems to be, and it might seem presumptuous to me to say it this way, what seems to be a real naivete, a real, they were really naive, you know, Pius the Eleventh. How, how would one dare accuse him of being naive? Or, uh, well, Benedict the Fifteenth came immediately after Saint Pius the Tenth. How would one accuse him, Della Chiesa, of being naive? The same Pius the Twelfth. How, how would you? Where would we find naivete there? Well, I think if one examined um, their policies as opposed to the because they were, in some ways, opposed to the policies of St. Pius X, specifically with regard to modernism. I do think you could make a case that they were very naive in their understanding of modernism. Uh, I don't think they really saw the danger of it. I mean, why, why would uh, Pope Benedict the, the XV have uh, basically fired, sacked Cardinal Mary Galval, who was the right-hand man of St. Pius X, and institute policies that were not nearly um, so, to safeguarding the church so much against modernism. Now, admittedly, I mean, he was pope during what we now know as World War I, at the time called the Great War. And that, no doubt, occupied an enormous amount of his time, his thought, his prayer. Um, but to, in a sense, uh, disarm the church, in a way, against the wiles of the modernists was a very bad idea. And the modernists did make some headway there. Uh, how does the modernist make headway in church? He, in, in the church, he gets appointed to positions. He gets his men put in place of influence and power in the church, uh, something that St. Pius X was determined to prevent. Um, and then Pope Pius XI, I mean, as the Archbishop uh, Nuncio, actually he was a Nuncio of the Holy See in Poland when it was being menaced by Russian uh, Bolshevik troops, right? And everyone thought in 1920 that Warsaw would fall into the hands of the Bolsheviks and there'd be an enormous massacre. Pius XI, as the Apostolic Nuncio, asked for permission and obtained it to remain with the Polish people and uh, to face their fate. I mean, that took a great deal of courage. 
And you, sign, you find that when he became Pope Pius uh, the, the 11th, he was trying to deal with the question of the Cristeros and the, the basically the, the Bolsheviks in their work in Mexico, trying to turn Mexico into a communist satellite back in the 1920s and 30s. And when the, uh, when the communists, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know what else you'd call them really, the agents of international Marxism in Mexico offered some kind of a truce, uh, asking the Costeros to come out of the mountains, lay down their arms, and uh, receive free uh, transportation home on the, on, the, on the railways. They were ordered to do so by Pope Pius XI through his Secretary of State, Cardinal Antonelli. And Pius XI was the one who actually told them that this is what they should do. And it was communicated through their bishops in Mexico. Uh, to the Cristeros, and they base essentially surrendered. And what they did was they surrendered themselves directly in, into the firing squads of the uh, Marxist. They'd, uh, they'd appear uh, at the train stations. They would actually have the carts uh, guaranteeing their safe passage, and as soon as they presented the card, they'd be taken out and back and shot to death. And I understand that Pope Pius XI, when he, when he became aware of this, he openly wept at what had happened. But, you know, from our vantage point, it might be easier to look back and say, well, how could he have trusted them? I mean, a man who faced them down, as it were, with prayer. Processions of the Blessed Sacrament from August 6th to August 15th of in 1920 in, in, in the streets of Warsaw. How could he not have seen this? Was it the influence of his Antonelli, Cardinal of State? I mean, who influenced him? I don't know. But uh, I, don't, I don't understand. And I, again, I have the benefit of you know, years and years of hindsight on this, how one could have uh, told those men to lay down their arms and they obeyed dutifully uh, unto their deaths, right? So, uh, you know, if you, I would consider that to be a bit of a naivete as far as I can know. And, but I think Pius XI was a very great man, a great, uh, actually a great Pope. Um, and he would be infallible, of course, as Pope in matters of faith and morals, speaking ex cathedra, but that doesn't mean every decision he made would be necessarily uh, infallible. And uh, the same that you, uh, you know, you come to Pope Pius XII. I think uh, that there were decisions he made, appointments he made, and so on, that served the cause of the modernists uh, all too well. Things he did and things he did not do. I think he was very devoted to Our Blessed Lady, though. I mean, an enormous number of uh, documents he issued on devotion to Our Lady. Um, and actually, it was Pope Pius XII who finally, finally, July 7, 1952, actually consecrated Russia and all the peoples of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in the, in the most particular way, he said. Uh, that document uh, might be available online, um, and uh, it's actually an apostolic letter, sometimes called an apostolic bull that he issued, uh, a letter that he, that he directed immediately to the peoples of Russia. He addressed them as such, this apostolic letter. It is in the Octa Apostolische Sedis under the date of uh, July 7th, 1952. The date itself is significant because it's the date of the feast day of Saints Cyril and Methodius, the great apostles to the Slavic nations. 
Uh, Pope Pius XII certainly chose that for a very important reason, right? And um, uh, he, he recounts in this letter to the Russian people of Russia, he recounts the history of the relationship of the, the peoples of Russia with the Holy See, their missionary efforts uh, that were undertaken for the souls of all these people, and finally concludes with this statement, saying that just as earlier we consecrated, and he was no doubt referring to the 1942 October and December uh, consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary that he himself, he himself had made. Uh, he said, just as earlier we consecrated the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, so now we consecrate in a most particular manner the peoples of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And he said very, very clearly that he hoped that this would bring peace to the world. Now, it wasn't a ceremony, but it was a statement, right? When Our Lady said at Fatima in 1917, in July, that, you know, Russia must be consecrated, the Holy Father would have to consecrate Russia to Immaculate Heart, she didn't say that it would have to be done by a ceremony. It wasn't specified. Yeah, but in, in July, I'm sorry, rather in, in the year 1929, and Our Lady told Lucia, actually, I think Our Lord might have been the one to actually state this to her, at the apparition of Tui in Spain. In, in, uh, well, anyway, that she should uh, direct Pope Pius XI to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary in union with all the bishops of the world. And that stipulation was added. But again, you know, you ask, well, does this mean the Holy Father is supposed to make a statement? Or is this like a, a solemn ceremony? Well, the addition of consecrating, uh, the Holy Father consecrating Russia with all the bishops of the world would seem to indicate that it was perhaps a ceremony, uniting them all. But it wasn't actually explicitly stated, as far as I know, anywhere by Lucia or anyone else. So. Uh, this statement by Pope Pius XII was very beautiful, very powerful. It's in the Acta Apostolice Sedis, the Acts of the Apostolic See, the official, the official publication of the Holy See for its, its official acts. So, I mean, you can't get much more official than that. You can't get any more official than that, actually. So it's in the, in the Acta Apostolice Sedis for the year 1952. And it's, it's very interesting, I think, that within a matter of months, maybe seven or eight months, Stalin was dead. After all that time, after that consecration was made, Stalin was dead. Probably poisoned by his own chief of police, his own fellow Georgian, uh, Beria, Avrenti Beria. But in any case, uh, I mean, we see the hand of God in these things. But even when Pope Pius XII consecrated the world to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, uh, in the very depths of World War II, uh, October uh, 13th of um, 1942, or actually it was the end of that month, it was toward the end of that month, October actually. And again, he repeated that uh, from St. Peter's December 8th on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception that year. Um, he still referred obliquely to Russia, but he wouldn't name Russia. And uh, he talked about that those people uh, who had a great devotion to Mary, our Blessed Mother, 
and who celebrated her with the icon. He refused, he reverted the word icon, which made it pretty clear he's talking about the Russian people. He said, now the icons of, in honor of Our Lady are kept hidden, awaiting better days. So as, as cryptic as those words might have seemed, everyone knew what they meant, including Stalin, right? Um, um, why he didn't come out and name Russia, there was enormous pressure not to. The reasons why that pressure was there, that's something we can discuss too. It's important to know why, uh, insofar as we can. <clears throat> but I, I think Pope Pius XII was a, a good pope, and I think he was a real Catholic. And I think he was trying to do things according to his ability and according to the lights that were given him. Uh, I think he was hampered by being surrounded by enemies of the faith, some of them placed there by himself, unwittingly perhaps. <clears throat> I think he was ham hampered by his own health, which might have actually been sabotaged by those close to him. After all, um, after the death of one of the cardinals, um, Tisserand, Tisserand, uh, it was found in his personal papers a note that Pope Pius XI had been poisoned to death by the personal physician of, uh, of uh, Il Duce, Mussolini. Um, is it credible? I think it is. Who knows what they were doing to Pope Pius XII to get away with murder, in this case, of the church, the modernists, and the leftists. So, in any way, uh, you know, again, I can't canonize Pope Pius XII, but I think he was truly trying to be a good Pope under extremely difficult circumstances. Uh, he was no St. Pius X, but then who is? That's why St. Pius X is so unique and so wonderful. Tell you, we need another Pope Pius X, though. We need another saint. Yep. Okay. So anyway, Tom, I don't know if that answers the question, but at least it uh, makes an effort. <laughs> no, that's good. Thank you. Right. Um, another email. How does someone research their Novus Ordo baptism to find out if it is valid or not, Father? And also, why is there a reluctance to conditionally baptize someone who comes from a Novus Ordo mm -hmm. background? Well, as far as the, uh, the first question, the second question, let's go with the second one. Uh, there's a certain reluctance to just um, automatically, uh, as a uh, re conditionally baptize those who come from the Novus Ordo, uh, because if one follows what's actually on the Novus Ordo books, as it were, in their rituale, um, generally, I mean, the, the traditional Catholic priests, I know, would all agree that the ceremony itself would be a valid ceremony, a baptism. Um, that the, the essential words of baptism are there, and that there's nothing in the ceremony itself which would contradict them. Um, the only reason why, therefore, one would just automatically, conditionally baptize anybody who comes to the Novus Ordo would be if one uh, had reason to suspect the, the intention of the person who was doing the baptism, in all cases, right, in all the cases. Uh, and we can't do that because there are conservative Novus Ordo priests out there, there are conservative, uh, you know, there are people who uh, have the faith and do baptize, um, and they don't have a contrary intention. They meet the minimum uh, requirement, according to the Church's own traditional teaching, of having the intention to at least do what the Church does outwardly in performing the sacrament. 
That's the church's first requirement, as it were, first level of judging these things, is that they follow the ceremony. If they follow the ceremony, that's the clearest indication that we can have, the first indication we have that they were intending to do what the church does, even if they don't have the faith and even know what that is, but to do what the church does when it does this. Uh, the church has always taught that. As a matter of fact, you go back to the, the second century, you go back to the third century, there was a question. Uh, there were various sects of heretics that had broken off, and they were baptizing, and they were following the ceremony of baptism. And the church had to judge what to do with these people. I'm talking about even in the, like, around the year 200, okay? Uh, what to do with these people who had been baptized by these heretical sects outside the church. Um, uh, did the church automatically um, assume, presume, or at least um, doubt the validity of the baptism? The church's answer at that time, the church's official answer at that time, and this is the traditional answer what the church has followed ever since, is that if the, the rite was followed as the church recognizes it, and the words of baptism were pronounced as the church accepts them, that the church accepted that as the primary indication of the intention of the one baptizing. And only if there was some particular reason why in a particular case there was some kind of a, and a doubt about the validity of the baptism uh, would the church actually conditionally baptize. This is the answer the church gave then. It's the traditional answer. It's the answer the church has been giving ever since. So if you want to be traditional, this is what you do. Um, now, I've, I've heard people say, well, look at the, um, the words that they give you, kind of the introduction to the new rite of baptism. And don't they say in that introduction to the new rite of baptism that they're baptizing you into the Novatsorov Church? And wouldn't that kind of mean right there that it couldn't be valid? Well, actually, uh, no. I mean, I've, I've looked at that. And again, even though it says, you know, it's making you part of the, the church and so on, it doesn't specify you're being part of the Novus Ordo. In fact, again, the, the proposition is that you're becoming part of the Catholic Church, a member of the Catholic Church by being baptized. And you may say, well, they don't even know what it is. They have a false conception of what it is. Well, okay, that, that doesn't necessarily invalidate the doing as far, as far as the sacrament goes. I mean, you look back in the, in, the, uh, in the year 200 when the church was judging this kind of thing, and there, there were people who were being baptized by explicitly non-Catholic sects, heretical sects. They were known to be heretical sects, and they were doing the baptism. And the church said that still did not invalidate the baptism. So if somebody's going to follow a Catholic tradition, he, he, has to do, he has to follow the lead that the church himself has given him under the guidance of the Holy Ghost. And this is how the church answered this question long ago. And frankly, she hasn't changed her answer in all these years, you know, all these centuries. Uh, so this is what true traditional Catholic Church uh, priests do. They examine uh, what is presented to them. Now, now Pope Pius Twelfth again, uh, pronounced on the subject of receiving converts from, uh, let's say, Protestant sects. Uh, so these would be kind of the equivalent of the heretical sects back then, you know, in the early centuries. 
And he did say that if we have converts come from uh, Lutheranism and Presbyterianism, Congregationalism and all the rest, uh, that they should be conditionally baptized. Why, he says, because we have nowhere, uh, no way of verifying and arriving at, at, at certitude that they were baptized correctly. Um, so um, we, we have to just, uh, out on, we have to just for safety's sake, give them at least the conditional baptism. Uh, even if I have a record, a written record, saying so-and-so was baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost in this Lutheran church, I'd have to give them conditional baptism. As Pope Pius XII said, uh, in the, he even acknowledged, in earlier times, uh, we, we would have some confidence that the baptism was done correctly, even in the Protestant sects. Now, he says, we have no way of knowing that. And so we have to just uh, carefully go ahead and, uh, and uh, conditionally baptize them. Um, but that's, that's a matter of uh, having, having some kind of positive indication that there's something wrong, uh, that they, they have so completely distorted the rite of baptism in most of these uh, organizations that you, you, you really don't know what they've done. Um, or if they have whatever they have done, again, there is such a corruption of understanding, you, you can't know for sure whether they had a contrary intention. But in the case of the Novus Ordo, I mean, the, the ceremony itself, as it is in the books, remains valid in the view of all the traditional priests that I know of, at least the ceremony itself. And... Uh, in fact, you have people who mistakenly um, uh, are going with the Novus Ordo thinking it's Catholic and thinking that's how they become Catholic, and that's what their intention is. Um, you also have, uh, and it's very clear, you have um, many of the Novus Ordo clergy who still actually believe in original sin and actually do believe in baptism. And we'll tell you point blank that we're, we're taking original sin from your soul by the power of the, of, of the sacrament of baptism and uh, giving you the first sanctifying grace in your soul, making you a child of God and an heir of heaven, the traditional, you know, definition. So it's just not, uh, not traditional Catholic to go around conditionally baptizing all of those who come to you uh, from the Novus Ordo. There, uh, an investigation needs to be done. How does one go about doing that investigation? Well, uh, there are witnesses required, who are godparents, right? Um, and in the Novus Ordo, it's done in English for the most part, although, I mean, in other countries, obviously, I mean, you have other languages employed there, but you have witnesses who know what is being said and what is not being said. You also have many people who know what would ne be necessary for a valid baptism, and if it weren't there, they would immediately know that. They would be immediately make a note of that. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What happened here? This wasn't right. Um, because you have people who, like themselves, have been raised in the traditional faith or uh, taught traditionally, a goodly number of them know what is necessary for a valid baptism, and they would notice right away if there was something wrong. So you have a different lay of the land, as it were, with this. Uh, there are ways to investigate, there are ways to even try to investigate the priest himself who poured the water and whether he was 
uh, noted to be rather very conservative and traditional in his, in his teaching, in his preaching, um, or whether he was a radical, uh, you know, from the get-go. Uh, and all of those things are indications. If there is any real doubt, if there's any, any, any real doubt, even, even a slight doubt, you know, but based upon a real fact, a known fact, <clears throat> then uh, the, the priest would give a conditional baptism. Um, but, you know, if the, if the ceremony was followed exactly and uh, the priest was known to be or could be found out to have been rather conservative in his views and at least have the, have the Catholic faith, um, and you have witnesses who can testify, yes, he actually poured the water and yes, he actually said these words, we heard them, um, even to the point of signing a sworn affidavit to that effect. Uh, you can have the confidence you need that the baptism was valid. Yeah. People can question anything into death. They can analyze anything to smithereens, right? That's called a scrupulous conscience. Right? And the church uh, does not encourage that scrupulosity, though. Um, but in any case, uh, I hope that does give some clarity, some answer. Sure, thank you. Well, perhaps this can be the final uh, email for tonight. Sure. Father, a uh, viewer asked if it is a if it could, in some circumstances, be a venial sin of lying to use euphemisms uh, in certain circumstances. One example she gives is um, when in regards to the question of homosexuality, using the euphemism of gay. Does that, in any sense, um, constitute a sin of lying, Father? I don't think it constitutes a sin of lying. I think it's just a matter of the means of communication people use these days. Personally, I find the word offensive um, because I think it is a euphemism in a sense that disguises the reality. Okay, tries to sugarcoat the reality, which is uh, not at all gay in the traditional sense of the word. <laughs> um, but it is the common parlance, and by using that word, I think a person is just trying to communicate with others in the language they understand when. Um, now, uh, as I say, uh, you know, personally, I would prefer to call it what it is, you know, um, and um, I, I suppose there might be some who would be offended by what it is, uh, calling it what it is, but I don't see how that would be considered uh, actually lying or deception, <laughs> unfortunately. It's the language as it has been perverted. Uh, that being said, I think it would be uh, still nonetheless commendable to avoid these euphemisms uh, and to just be very, very, shall we say, uh, frank and honest um, with the language we use. Not that we're being dishonest or unfrank by communicating that, but I think if our view is, look, let's... Uh, you know, this is what how you'd refer to it. This is what you understand, okay? Just so we have that connection. But uh, but I I understand it this way, and this is how I'm going to refer to it. Okay, Father, if we could um, your reaction to this to return back to the yes. original question. Consecration of Russia. Well, I, I knew this would get a little a little uh, involved. We've already kind of broached the subject anyway with Pope Pius the Twelfth. Um, and, and it gets down to the question, was the consecration 
of Russia by the Holy Father, the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, was that accomplished? Well, as Our Lady first presented it at Fatima, uh, yes, basically, insofar as it was a consecration by a true Roman pontiff of the peoples of Russia, of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, by that letter of Pope Pius XII in 1952. You could say, yes, the letter of the law was accomplished, the letter of the request was accomplished. Uh, the request made by Our Lady of 1929 was never accomplished uh, to consecrate Russia with all the bishops of the world. Again, it's a matter of speculation why Pope Pius XI never made that consecration. And it couldn't have been due to cowardice. Uh, when you read the encyclicals he wrote especially, but Benedict Zorge, against Nazism, National Socialism in Germany, and uh, Divini Redentoris condemning um, atheistic communism in Russia, uh, both encyclicals in 1937. You, you can't say that either one of those was the work of a coward. They were both the work of a, of a Catholic uh, champion, Pope Pius XI. So why he didn't consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart with the bishops of the world? Well, again, I've, I've speculated on that before. I don't think he had the cons the I don't think he had the uh, cooperation of the bishops of the world. I think it's because so many of them had, had become modernists by that time. I think they were entrenched and they simply were intractable. Many of the bishops would have joined him. Many of them would not. Perhaps he was afraid of the scandal and creating an open rift. I don't know about that. But uh, the fact is many of the bishops were already corrupted. So in any case, um, but the, the, uh, there's a certain amount of confusion that, that comes out of it because... Yes, I mean, Pope Pius XII did, in fact, enter into the Octa Apostolic Cetis, a public statement of the Holy See officially consecrating the peoples of Russia in the most particular manner to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And this was clearly in um, response to what Our Lady had requested at Fatima. Um, and, but then, you know, the, the requirement about the union of the bishops of the world, that was never done. Um... Now we're in a situation here where the um, question is, I mean, can it, can it even be done? The, the story, current story, is that um, the, uh, on March 2nd, okay, that was actually Ash Wednesday of this year, the Latin Rite Catholic bishops of U Ukraine petitioned Francis to consecrate Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And on March 15th, uh, the Vatican Press Office answered by saying that Francis would consecrate the Ukraine and Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary on uh, March 25th, which is very soon. Um, that is the feast, the traditional feast of the Annunciation of Our Lady. The feast day on which, um, which commemorates the Incarnation in which uh, the angel Gabriel appeared to Our Lady and uh, told her of the divine plan, the redemption and her role in it as the mother of the Savior, the Redeemer. And she consented, um, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. This is the feast of March 25th, the Annunciation. And it is also the f an anniversary of the death of Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, so uh, now is Francis thinking, uh, connecting this in any way with the 
That's a very special effect. Uh, probably not. I could doubt it. Um, the choice of March 25th, I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that it is the Feast of Our Lady. But, uh, you know, there are a lot of things uh, involved here, uh, notably whether Francis really is the Supreme Bot to begin with, um, the question of whether he has the faith, and what he would mean by this. Um, uh, right now, I'm sure they're drafting this statement that is to be made. Who's drafting it? And who is it going to be drafted for? I mean, it's going to be supposedly an appeal to our Blessed Lady. Consecration of the people of the Ukraine and the peoples of Russia to the Immaculate Heart. But um, we have an enormous amount of water under the bridge, and it's not holy water. I mean, he, Francis has basically indicated that Pachamama, the idol of the Amazon, the earth goddess, uh, who's a murderous earth goddess, actually, uh, also represented by as a gigantic serpent at times, right, uh, in a garden. Um, and they use those symbols in the, in the Vatican itself, in St. Peter's Basilica itself, laying out this Pachamama worship there. I mean, is this the man who is supposed to consecrate Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary? And he's thinking of Pashamama as being some sort of representation of Mary? How is this possible? Wouldn't he have to uh, reject that and formally repent of that and, and uh, acknowledge that was wrong, it was idolatrous, it was horribly offensive to God? Uh, wouldn't he need to do that before presuming to invoke Our Lady uh, as some sort of great heavenly Pachamama? Uh, I mean, I, I would think that any Catholic, including any Catholic Pope, would say, yes, I mean, you have some things to take care of before you can honestly uh, and, uh, you know, uh, presume to represent the Catholic, uh, Catholic people, the Catholic Church. Uh, before the world, if, before heaven itself. And, uh, I mean, so many other things, too, with the, uh, the, the uh, quote-unquote gay mafia, excuse me for being euphemistic here, <laughs> I mean, promoting uh, those who are friendly to this into positions of power, right, in the Novus Ordo uh, establishment. I mean, this is something that is certainly among the very things that Our Lady condemned at Fatima. So how can someone like Francis, who has basically distinguished himself by doing so many things and consistently doing things that are diametrically opposed to the message of Fatima, uh, things that were not only um, condemned at Fatima, but which we were told we had to um, repent of, stop doing, uh, and... Um, and uh, the whole world was, was going to be suffering these terrible afflictions because these things were being done. And here Francis has dedicated his, his papacy of the Novus Ordo, of the New Order, because he is the Pope of the no order, New Order. Nobody doubts that. He's the Pope of the New Order, right? And he's dedicated that papacy of the New Order to <clears throat> doing the very things that Our Lady has condemned and said actually are drawing the wrath of heaven down upon us. And unashamedly, he goes forward and uh, to consecrate Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Mary. How is this possible? 
Um, I don't know how it's possible. I don't know how virtually anything is going is really possible, at least as far as coming from a Catholic Pope, and I mean a Catholic, let alone a Catholic Pope. You know, how can any of this be happening? Um, so it would seem to me that there's an enormous amount of repenting to be done before anyone would dare do what he's proposing to do on March 25th. Uh, do I think he's going to do it? Yes, I do. Uh, what do I expect him to express? I expect him to express something about the earth and protecting the earth and respecting the earth, right? About how it's not just the poor in spirit, but the poor, they are, they are all, you know, holy in the eyes of God, all the poor people, just because they're poor, it sort of gives them a right to, uh, uh, sanctifying grace. I don't know if he ever uses the expression sanctifying grace, but you know, favor of God. Uh, as though poverty itself were a virtue instead of the spirit of poverty. Um, so I expect his statement to rope in all of that. I don't expect it to really uh, talk about Our Lady's call at Fatima for repentance from sins, um, uh, from sins against the Sacred Heart and the Immaculate Heart. I don't expect him to call for repentance against sins of impurity, when he's issued his uh, wonderful, well, I'm being facetious here, his apostolic exhortation, talking about adultery is not being grounds for refusing their communion, right? I mean, how can he condemn any of the things that Our Lady condemned at Fatima when he has been promoting all these things all this time? I don't expect him to be calling for repentance from any of these things, as Our Lady did from Fatima, I expect them to be calling us to repentance from the things, uh, basically the leftist green program, uh, the Great Reset. I expect them to use this opportunity to push the Great Reset, um, which, which is really just nothing but the green program pushed by uh, this uh, Ocasio-Cortez lady, you know, it's some, simply, what do they call it, the Green... The Green New Deal. The Green New Deal, okay? It's, basically, look at the Great Reset, and that, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to push this on the world. And I expect Francis will use this opportunity to blaspheme further by trying to get across the, the, the essential points of um, the Great Reset, the Green New Deal... <laughs> <laughs> that God uh, positively wills all the different religions of the world, uh, with or without Christ, even against Christ, and so on. And I expect, but but here, but Tom, it's what happens next that worries me the most. Now you have to remember, we all have to remember that the the misery that is being inflicted in, on the Ukrainian people right now is being affected, uh, inflicted deliberately. And it's not just by a Putin or a Zelensky, right? Uh, they have their handlers. It's all part of this. Archbishop Vigano wrote an excellent, lengthy treatment of this whole issue about the war in the Ukraine. In fact, uh, we have here from uh, LifeSite News, Archbishop Vigano, globalists have fomented war in Ukraine to establish the tyranny of the New World Order. 
that's a, a good summary of what he has to say here. And he gives a lot of names and dates and places, a lot of facts. It shows that he's very, very knowledgeable about what's going on here. In fact, I wanted to read from some of this statement of Archbishop uh, Viganon. Um, but I don't need to right now because of the time. But any one of our listeners can go and find this readily on the LifeSite News uh, website. Uh, Archbishop Viganon's account of the buildup and the present situation of this uh, conflict, this war in the Ukraine right now. Very much an eye-opener, showing how this is all orchestrated at the expense of the Ukrainian people. And the people who are behind this have no conscience, no soul. They, they don't care how much suffering they cause. They just have their goal, is bringing about a new world order. And if millions of people have to die, if millions of people have to suffer for it, it's a small price to pay for accomplishing their vision. Okay? Um, I think Archbishop Vigano does a masterful job of presenting this. And recommend everybody they actually look, th look at this and pay attention to it and try to understand what he's saying. Because if you understand what he's saying, I think you understand. You really do understand what's going on. Um, that it's not just Putin, it's not just... Uh, Zelensky, who are both basically creatures of the New World Order themselves, right? And being used now for, to serve this purpose. But in, in any case, uh, to get back to the point, uh, this all being done deliberately, all of this is being was set up deliberately, was brought to this point deliberately. It can also be undone at any moment. And they just say, okay, enough. Now let's do this. Like they did with COVID, right? Now it's like, okay, we've got as far as we can with COVID. We, we've killed as many as people as we can with COVID. And we've demoralized so many others. We've destroyed the economies as far as we can with COVID. So uh, let's switch gears now and go to phase two. And I think this is phase two right now. Um, and again, I mean, we could go into detail. Archbishop Vigano does that. And you don't need me to do that right now, but there are aspects of it that I think are very clearly part of this phase two to bring us farther along the road of this Green New Deal of the New World Order. But um, what, what would happen now if, if you wanted to deceive the elect? If you wanted to deceive the elect by having a false consecration of now Russia and Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and you wanted to couch it in terms of a worldly, the worldly sense, and you made this, wouldn't it make sense for you to say, okay, now we're going to show the power of Francis's prayer to the, uh, Our Lady of the Pachamama, and now we're going to bring peace. Miraculously now, there's going to be peace. I mean, this is the kind of the message that is sent in uh, uh, Monsignor Robert U. Benson's book, The Lord of the World, right? So maybe they read the book. Francis did. He said it's one of his favorites. I can see why. Uh, so, um, you know, why not now make this, this, this wonderful consecration with all the Novus Ordo bishops, or most of them, and then actually arrange for uh, armistice and peace. And suddenly we see Putin and uh, Zelensky arm in arm on the balcony at St. Peter's with Francis, looming over them, and, 
everything is just peace, love, and joy everywhere. What, what do you think effect that would have? What effect would it have? People of the world, right? Suddenly we find, we find the, the communist government of Cuba being won over to faith. You know, actually Raul, Raul Castro, after meeting Francis, said he would consider becoming a Catholic now because Francis, she puts a different light on Catholicism. He wouldn't stop being communist. He, said, he didn't say that. <clears throat> but <clears throat> imagine the effect of that. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised to find that this actually is all part of the program. Because, let's face it, I mean, if you're looking at those who are really opposed to this new world order, you'd find traditional Catholics practically, I mean, to a man and a woman and a child, you know, resisting this. I think uh, you'd find, uh, you know, you look at the Novus Ordo Catholics of the world, they have a higher percentage, a higher rate of vaccination than any other ethnic or uh, demographic. The Novus Ordo because they got Francis up there insisting you have to do this. It's the right thing to do. They have a higher representation of vaccinated people, percentage-wise, than any other religious group. Um, but the traditional Catholics, they they don't trust this, and uh, they are absolutely resolute in resisting it. And if you wanted to, you, if you wanted to bring them over, especially the Trinos. This would be a good way to do it. Um, so I, I'm concerned um, that it's another it's another step in the in the program. That doesn't mean that all of the Novus Ordo, the Latin Rite bishops of the of Ukraine, are you know doing this knowingly and and you know to, to you know set up uh, the Green New Deal or the Great Reset. I, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is there are those who are orchestrating this and they might well see this as an opportunity, as an opportunity to uh, move things forward for them, uh, to win over opposition to their side and further isolate those who really are traditional Catholics who are trying to follow Catholic tradition in its integrity. And their opposition to the, the Great Reset, the New World Order, uh, the Green Machine, whatever else they call it. Um, so this, this is a concern of mine, that we need to pray and pray very earnestly that the graces are there for there to be true traditional Catholic leadership who will not compromise and will not lead people astray, you know. I... I fear for the Society of St. Pius X, they're being told by their leadership. Well, I mean, back when, uh, when Francis issued his Traditionis uh, Custodes, uh, you know, the head of the Society of St. Pius X worldwide comes out and says, all we want is our right to the traditional Latin Mass. All we want is our right to uh, have that, that Mass. That's all we want. We want that right acknowledged. Is that really all we want? To be acknowledged that we can coexist with the Novus Ordo? In the Novus Ordo? Is that all we want? That they just acknowledge that we have a right to the traditional Mass? As long as we just let them go their way and be Novus Ordo and do Novus Ordo modernist things? And the answer is, no. That's not the traditional Catholic way of thinking. Um, so again, I, I fear how they might be, again, taken in by this. Um, 
So uh, I, I think it's a means, uh, ultimately going to means of isolating more and more, more of those who will seem more and more in the eyes of the rank and file proletariat of the day to be unreasonable, unyielding, unwilling to compromise. And uh, shall we say uh, zealots, even terrorists, right? Uh, because we will not uh, conform because we will not conform. So, in any case, at least not conform to, uh, to their temptations, right? As our Lord himself would not conform to Lucifer's temptations in the desert. So, so anyway, I, I'm going to leave it you with that. <laughs> okay. Such as it is. Sure. Well, I think we can close with that, Father. We'll definitely continue to uh, keep tabs on this and see what happens with the actual consecration on March 25th. I'm sure we'll give the full report to our viewers. So. Well, I think it's going to be a consecration to somebody. Yeah. Or oh, somebody to somebody. But uh, um, I, uh, I, don't, I don't expect it to be what Our Lady intended at Fatima. I don't expect it to be what she spoke of in 1929. I don't expect it to be what the traditional, what the Catholic Church traditionally would say is a real consecration of Russia, Ukraine, or anything else to the real Immaculate Heart of the Real Mother of God. Right. Bottom line, we need to pray. We need to pray the Rosary. We need to practice the traditional faith in its integrity. Not to be rhinos or trinos, but to be traditional Catholics in the full sense of the word. And uh, totally devoted to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and through her Immaculate Heart to the Sacred Heart and the Kingship of Jesus Christ over all mankind. That has got to be our constant focus. That's our message. Amen. Father, thanks for being here tonight. God bless you. Thank you, Tom. God bless you all. Yeah. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.